0: Welcome to the Not Old, Better show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and as part of our Smithsonian Inside Science interview series, we have the latest buzz. The spotted lantern fly spottings are on the rise throughout the country, potentially causing enormous crop damage and economic loss. And the hammerhead worm is another potentially dangerous species you need to be on the lookout for. Here to tell us that... And more is returning guest, and audience favorite, Dr. Floyd Shockley, Smithsonian's Collections Manager for the Department of Entomology at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Dr. Shockley will join us momentarily as we have much to discuss today with him. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 734th episode when I spoke with Alan Shane about his new book, The Star Dressing Room, Portrait of an Actor. Alan Shane's new book, The Star Dressing Room, is really an affectionate, often uproarious new memoir that takes us back to Broadway and Hollywood golden age. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Forbes 30 Under 30 CEO and co-founder of Electric E-Bike, Levi Conlow. Excellent subjects for our Smithsonian Not Old Better Show audience. If you miss those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows all free for you there on our website, Not old. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need to know about us. Smithsonian's Dr. Floyd Shockley is returning here to help us understand the spotted lanternfly, the hammerhead worm, and all other insects. Dr. Floyd Shockley is the Collections Manager for the Department of Entomology at Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. In addition, we will talk to Dr. Shockley about ways insects are pivotal to our environment and ecosystems, how insects adapt and evolve to survive in rapidly changing environments like those of today, and what kind of economic threats or damages spotted lantern flies, hammerhead worms, and others pose, particularly to gardeners and farmers and bees, because bee lives matter and a lot more. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old, Better Show, Smithsonian Inside Science Interview series on radio and podcast, Dr. Floyd Shockley. Dr. Floyd Shockley, welcome back to the program. Uh, It's my pleasure to be with you. It's great to talk to you. Happy summer. Hope all is well for you and yours. I just have to tell you right at the the top of the show here, I always enjoy talking to you because we, we talk about uh, your specialty, entomology. We talk about all kinds of insects, some really fun stuff for our audience, conservation, lots of really, you know, very interesting things in, in our day and age. And I wonder if you just, you of course have been on before and, and such a, an audience favorite, but maybe maybe just describe a little bit about what you do as collections manager for the Smithsonian and, and uh, uh, maybe bring us current about kind of what you're doing now. Sure,
1: no problem. So, as, uh, as you said, the, I'm the collections manager for the Department of Entomology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Um, in that role, uh, I do a variety of things, including fun stuff like science communication like we're doing now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I do a lot of the sort of overall administration for uh, the collection under my care. So uh, if you can imagine, uh, we have, we have a, a number of curators, not just on the Smithsonian side, but we also have Department of Agriculture staff that are embedded curators, uh, and they uh, manage smaller portions of the collection, especially those that are directly related to their research interests, or in the case of our Department of Agriculture folks, they are focused on insects of interest regarding agriculture, like pests, uh, invasive species, biological control agents, and those kinds of things. And then We also have members of our Walter Reed Biosystematics Unit, which is a branch of the Department of Defense, and they are focused on uh, biting flies and potential vectors of human and animal diseases. So we have a lot of things going on, uh, and each of those groups have slightly different missions. uh, And as collections manager, I sort of tie it all together and am responsible for the collection as a whole, the entire 35 million, not. Just uh, beetles or or butterflies <laughs> uh, or or any of the any of the smaller ordinal units, I'm responsible for the entire thing,
0: yeah, well, it's fascinating work. and that's how I say, I always enjoy talking to you if if we were kind of face to face, you'd just see this big smile on my face because you you really just do so much and it just spreads far and wide. I'll tell you this just in the news today, you're probably aware. Um, because a lot of your work is really very newsworthy. You yourself are, and then a lot of the stuff that you work on. So my wife and I live in Fairfax County, Virginia. And just today, as a matter of fact, and it's been ongoing for a week or two. And again, I'm, I'm sure you're very aware of all this. But, but the spotted lanternfly was in the news because of um, a news report. Uh, telling residents of Fairfax County, Virginia to be vigilant, to be aware that sightings throughout the county have uh, been on the increase. So this is work that, you know, whether it's biting flies or whether it is invasive species to agriculture, this is all stuff that's in the news. And the spotted lanternfly is absolutely in the news. What what do we need to know about the spotted lanternfly right now? And, and what do we do if we see one?
1: So sure. So the spotted lanternfly uh, is uh, it's uh, an invasive species that that came from China. Uh, It has now spread from its original uh, location where it was first detected in Pennsylvania to now more than 14 states have confirmed populations. Uh, And uh, a lot of those are in the uh, northeast, and the mid Atlantic area. And there's a lot of concern uh, as this thing continues to spread across uh, other, other parts of the country. It's starting to move into uh, the, the Midwest. Uh, and they're really paying attention uh, about, uh, about the spotted Lantern Fly to try and keep it out of the Western states, especially California, where uh, it could really impact a lot of the grape and wine growing areas these things uh you know they're they have a a preferred uh host plant of of tree of heaven but they readily switch to lots of different things that we like to cultivate so uh think about almonds think about apples and apricots cherries uh lots of things that we we use uh as as fruit trees um, they will readily switch to, and because they build up in large populations really quickly, uh, they can overwhelm uh, the plant. Um, and and of course, the I already mentioned the one that really has people's attention here uh, in Virginia, where which is also where I live, is uh, the potential impact on grapes. We have a a really large uh, and growing grape industry uh, for making wine here in in Virginia, and so a lot of people are are really uh, paying attention to this because uh, they absolutely can come in and decimate a vineyard uh, if they, if they become established. And so it's one of those rare instances where, even though, you know, I make my living caring for and conserving and protecting insects and preserving those that are collected. It's sort of the one thing that all entomologists are sort of agreeing on is, you know, if you see these things, either as adults or as nymphs, you know, um document it like take a picture report it and kill it um and that's very rare for we don't like saying that very often so that should give you sort of an indication of just how seriously we're taking uh the potential impact of spotted lanternfly uh on our on our on our fruit uh and and wine industries
0: thank you for that yeah and these are they're kind of cute little it sex too and they're they're little too right we'll put a picture up on our website but they're they're actually almost a you know a cute little bug
1: well so they certainly are attractive looking <laughs> um the adults <laughs> actually aren't that small they're they're almost an inch in length okay. um so they're pretty good size the nymphs tend to be very uh, very much smaller and um, that's that's pretty typical in insects like these guys um but the the adults have sort of a a pink color to their fore wings, which is the, the the wings that you would ordinarily see as they're just hanging out on the tree. It's sort of a gray and pink mottled appearance. And then when they open their wings, they've got these brilliant red hind wings. Um and so they're they're really quite attractive. And even as the even as the nymphs, um, which don't have the wings yet, um, they're often brightly colored, black and red, contrasting and 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 really cute. But um Unfortunately, they're also really bad for many, many plants and trees that we that we we like to cultivate. So uh, we, we kind of ask people to kind of get over the, the, the <laughs> fact that it is a very cute thing
0: um,
1: and uh, again, report them and and then kill them if you can.
0: Is there a predator for the, the, the spotted lanternfly?
1: unfortunately, not not at this time. So there are a few potential uh, parasitoids that are being tested right now. See, this thing is from outside of the US. Mm-hmm. And so most of our native uh, invertebrate and vertebrate uh, that might prey on them don't really recognize them as food. I mean, you'll you'll certainly catch um, you know mantis uh, mantids feeding on these guys. You know, generalist predators will will eat them just fine. But the but the population numbers build up so fast that they basically end up satiating most of our native predators, and there we don't really have a specialist that specifically targets these um, because they are from China. Um, nothing here, you know, evolved to feed on them, and so you know we are looking at potential natural enemies from China uh, to attack these things, and, and again. Um, we are we are looking at the moment not we the Smithsonian but <laughs> um, the Department of Agriculture and various other uh, parts of the government are looking at small parasitic wasps that mm. seem to be uh, effective against these. Those are imported as well, and so the, I don't want to get everybody's hopes up though because um, we have to pass a really high bar anytime we're talking about introducing. A parasitic wasp or a predator that's not native here, we have to be absolutely sure before we start releasing those things that it's not going to have a negative impact on something that is native here or something that we want to we keep around. So it has to go through a lot of testing ahead of time. Hmm. But there is some, some, some positive results that, that suggest that we may have something to combat them in the future, but we're not there yet.
0: The other insect that's really in the news quite a bit lately is this hammerhead flatworm. We'll put a picture of it too. This one's not so cute. It it's really kind of a gruesome looking guy. And I wonder if you tell us a little bit about the hammerhead flatworm, what makes it so invasive and potentially dangerous and 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 then again, what do we do when we we see some of these?
1: Well, so so uh, first off, let me let me uh, make a small correction. So, <laughs> um, hammerhead worms aren't insects at all. As a matter of fact, they're not even part of uh, the larger group arthropods to which insects, spiders, and other things uh, that we typically deal with belong. They're okay. they're more closely related to earthworms. Mm-hmm. They're they're a worm group. Most of their diversity is actually marine, uh, so it's in the oceans, but there are some that are freshwater, and there are some that are uh, terrestrial. Now, uh, these guys, the, the closest thing most people have probably ever heard, if you went to any you know high school biology class, those little funny-looking little tiny flatworms that they mm-hmm, pull out for mm-hmm, biology class, mm-hmm. and you cut those guys in half, and, and each half grows the other half that, that was removed, that is the group to which this group belongs. So... Um they they can build up very fast because uh if they get cut in half, the the half each half will grow the entire other half. So if you take one of these guys and you cut them in half, you're gonna take one worm and turn it into two. They can grow a whole new head, they can grow a whole new body, um, and almost any way you can slice them, they can replace that and you end up with a whole bunch of of these things. So um, so these guys are also uh an invasive from Asia. Um, they've been here actually for a long, long time. But what has people concerned is um, their population numbers are going up um, and um, they're moving into places where they haven't typically done. been. So, so these guys uh, lay their eggs uh, at the base root balls of plants, and that's how we think they actually got here. Um, they've been in the U.S. for over a century, and anybody who has greenhouses um, in especially the eastern half of the country has probably encountered these. If you import uh, plants in and that nice, stable environment that's created in a greenhouse, these guys go crazy in there because it's nice and it's humid um, <clears throat> and the temperature remains stable. So um, so most most greenhouse managers have at least heard of these guys. But now they're getting out and they're moving around uh, out in the wild. They're not no longer sort of contained in greenhouses and the typical places where they have been. And the reason people should care is sort of twofold. Uh, the, the first is that um, they feed on earthworms, almost exclusively on earthworms. And so earthworms are, are uh, critical in especially urban habitats. Um, because of the services they provide ecological services by, by their digging and by their feeding, they recycle nutrients. They create, uh, you know, oxygen tunnels as well as tunnels through which water can flow, Hmm. um, which is really good in disturbed habitats. So we're, we're talking about your gardens, your flower beds, places where you're typically used to having earthworms. Um, and so, um, those kind of habitats are also going to be attracted to these things so they're going to be you know not really out in the forest as much although you will see them there but you're mainly going to encounter them close to your home in your gardens and flower beds and stuff like that and they they come out sort of in the same sort of you know they're 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 predators of earthworms so the same kind of conditions that bring earthworms to the surface also make these guys active so you know checking uh, in early morning, after a rain, when the earthworms are all out and and moving about, these guys are also out and moving about. Um, <clears throat> and so the other reason why people should be concerned about them is uh, sort of an offensive weapon that also has a defensive uh, role as well, and that is that these guys uh, are some of the only invertebrates that have ever been documented to produce tetrodotoxin, which is the same toxin that pufferfish create. And they mm-hmm. use that uh, mainly to subdue their prey. These earthworms that they're feeding on can sometimes be substantially larger than them. And so they'll use that tetrodotoxin to paralyze the worm while they then uh, insert their mouth parts, inject enzymes, and then, and then basically drink up um, the digested earthworm uh, innards, if you will. But that can also have a strong impact on people. So um, it can soak through the skin. It is a, usually a really nasty burn if you handle these things. Um, and it could potentially be dangerous for pets or native wildlife that have never encountered them, have no enzymes to break down to trototoxin uh and so if ingested um can actually uh be toxic in high enough uh volume so um what we recommend is when you when you come across one of these things and you can't really miss them um mm-hmm. so they they look like little hammerhead sharks they've mm-hmm. got sort of this spade like head um at 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 the front end and um so they use that to sort of move around through the through the leaf litter um And, and so when you see these things that you really can't, can't confuse them with anything else, um, they can be quite long in some cases, more than 12 inches in length Hmm. in a, in a fully grown one. So, so these are not necessarily small. Now, most of them are probably going to be significantly smaller than that. You may not even notice them because they're going to be crawling around through the grass and you're not going to see them. They're going to be on the surface of the soil. And, and sometimes that's not always to see. Uh, easy to see. But when you do come out during the rain, you'll often see these guys moving around, you know, crawling across pavement, crawling across sidewalks, just like their earthworm prey. Um, and when you encounter them, you don't want to touch them, at least not without gloves. Um, so, um, and, and we also recommend don't try stepping on them, don't try cutting them up, um, because as I said, these guys can regenerate. The they're incredible regenerators. And so uh, you're only doing them a favor by cutting them. Um, (laughs) No matter how many slices you cut them up into, each one can grow a whole new worm. So um, you have to be really careful about that. So uh, what's actually recommended is um, if you can safely collect them into a Ziploc bag uh, or into a jar, uh, and then you put a little salt or a little vinegar on them. Uh, both of those will actually kill the worm. And then you take the whole thing sealed and you throw it away. Um, you can treat with salt you know, without capturing them. Um, it's a little grotesque, if I'm being honest, because basically <laughs> when you apply salt to these things, they kind of dissolve. Um, and so uh, it can be pretty horrifying if you're trying to show your kids uh, how to do this. So it's, it's usually just easier to collect them Uh, Do it in a bag and then throw the bag away as Mm -hmm. opposed to leaving a a half melted worm uh, outside for your kids uh, or your pets to find.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's kind of one of those things that, you know. You, you you get what you get with these guys because they they do some pretty grues, gruesome things to earthworms themselves. So you know maybe letting them dissolve. That,
1: that's absolutely <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. But I will say one other thing I wanted to mention that uh, keeps getting sort of missed uh, when when people are talking about the the hammerhead worms is the worms that they're feeding on uh, are also non-native. So most of the earthworms that we have especially in the Northeast, uh, are all introduced species um, that have gotten here basically the same way the hammerhead worms in soil, in root balls, uh, and have become established. And they, they, they are very different than what our native earthworms uh, are like in terms of how they, how they work. And they're actually kind of bad for forest habitat. So they're great for gardens. They're great for, for greenhouses. Um, but they're not very good for forests because of the way they feed. It's a little different. They don't go as deep, so nutrients don't get sort of spread around. And that's all because um, most of our northern earthworms went extinct during the last uh, global glaciation event. So when glaciers were pushing down across North America, they were scouring most of the areas where the earthworms were located And so really only our southern earthworms and our western earthworms are native species. And most of the ones we have here and most of the ones you buy for bait are actually non-native species.
0: Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything smithsonian as part of our smithsonian associates interview series on radio and podcast we're introducing you to the new smithsonian associates streaming series smithsonian a non-profit organization is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview smithsonian associate guest speakers Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Floyd Shockley. Dr. Floyd Shockley is the collections manager for the Department of Entomology at Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Dr. Shockley is the spokesperson for the National Insect Collection for the Department of Entomology. And... Been on the program before. Always a favorite. Certainly a favorite of mine to to talk with. I wonder, Doctor Shuckley, if you go back a few years with us and maybe tell us what really generated this interest in sex Was there a defining moment in your life, some experience that steered you towards this field?
1: Great question. Um, so actually, you know, I unfortunately I wish I was had one of those inspirational stories where you know I was. I was chasing butterflies as a three-year-old. Um, I, I don't. I came into entomology much later in life, but, um, you know, I grew up on a small farm in rural Missouri uh, and spent a lot of my time outside, uh, out in the woods, so I was a nature kid. I wasn't an insect person yet, but I was definitely into nature, uh, animals, plants, um, And, you know, because of that, I was uh, intensely interested in biology. And so throughout my high school and college years, uh, I pursued biology and I I had a really uh, fantastic experience in college with with a professor who was an entomologist and had a real that was my first real introduction to entomology. I'd had a couple of courses in invertebrate zoology, but of course, that's much, much broader. Um, but she really sort of changed, uh, changed my perspective, uh, and really developed and cultivated an interest in me. And so, uh, when I had the opportunity to go to graduate school, uh, that's when I made the switch to entomology. And I actually wasn't interested in, you know, initially working in insect diversity. I actually started off working In host plant resistance and insect behavior, Um, my first my master's project um, was actually on potato leafhopper and glandular haired haired alfalfa resistance. Um, So I was more of an applied person uh, for my master's. But it was during my master's that I got my I had my first course in real insect taxonomy and started talking about um, how things evolved and and the the interconnectedness via classification of of insects and that's also where i got my you know developed my interest in beetles which became sort of my research focus uh and so uh when i had the opportunity after i finished my master's to go for a phd uh, i went into insect systematics and i've been doing it ever since
0: Well, congratulations on on all this great work and and all that you do. Again, it's just fascinating, Dr. Floyd Chuckley. I'll tell you, my own mother is from uh, Kansas City, Missouri, so we're we're Chiefs fans here too. I th- I believe you're a Chiefs fan as well, so we'll just kind of just say <laughs> go go Chiefs at the outset of the guilty, of the <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. I I uh, I have a question for you then about because you kind of refer to this about you know how insects you know really are, are are a fundamental part of our environment and, and ecosystems maybe maybe tell us why that is what role do they play?
1: well um I mean it's it's it would be a shorter list for me to tell you what roles they don't play. Hmm. I mean, insects are incredibly important in virtually every terrestrial ecosystem in which they're found uh, doing something, if nothing more than serving as the base of the food chain for all other higher higher invertebrates and vertebrates to live there. So, uh, in freshwater ecosystems, you know, everybody always talks about, you know, what can't, if we could get rid of mosquitoes, should we? And the answer is always no, not if you like, not if you like fish, <laughs> not if you like, you know, having dragonflies around, these are all, these are all fundamental to the ecosystems in which they occur, you know, and we, and we, uh, enjoy billions of dollars worth of pollination services from insects, um, you know, they produce a variety of products that we use, silk, um, and a variety of other things um, that we find that we find useful for manufacturing. They serve as great models uh, for developing uh, more uh, streamlined flight. Um, we're now using, you know, beetles from the desert as a model for how to create a substance. Um, that uh, is a better moisture capturing uh, mechanism, but reflects light. And so, we are using these insects in lots of different ways. They're sort of uh, incredibly important models uh, for genetic work that we do um, because we, we we have whole genomes for lots of different insects. But in the environment, they're fundamental. Um, they feed birds. Um, they feed um, most of the most of the small mammals uh, feed on insects at least part of the time. Uh, and so, uh, if, if, if insects weren't around, it would be a pretty terrible place to live. Um, because, you know, think about it. Insects are the primary decomposers of vertebrate bodies. So all of these roadkill, you know, uh, deer and raccoons and things would basically just sit there, uh, without insect intervention. Um, they, they play an important role in nutrient recycling um, in lots of different ways. And so, you know, one of the things I always talk about is, you know, there's at any one time, there's about 10 quintillion insects alive on earth. So that's a one followed by 18 zeros. Wow. So that's about 4 billion per human being. Hmm. So, you know, anybody who, you know, is talking about, um, why are insects important? Well, it's important to keep in mind that they're actually the little things that rule this world. This is an insect planet, not a human planet. We're just living on it, right? <laughs> and so um, it, it really is it really is uh, important that people sort of get an understanding, even if they don't love them, if they can appreciate the important role that they play uh, in their everyday lives, if you like if you like um, you know most of the plants that we that we consume for food, uh, have an insect pollinator, um, and 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 so you know the world would look very very differently if insects weren't here, uh, and it would it would be much much harder on us. And so that's one of the reasons why entomologists are are uh, paying really close attention to insect declines that we're noticing worldwide. Mm-hmm. The the number of insects and the number of species is rapidly declining uh, at a, at a pace. That we haven't seen in 65 million years. So uh, we're we're trying to get a handle on what impact this is having, how it's going to impact, uh, you know, human lives in terms of our ability to continue to produce enough food uh, to feed a, an ever-growing population, uh, and and what impact it's going to have downstream as as you know the, those species drop out of the food web it's inevitably going to impact uh, everything else. So fish, birds, mammals, uh, and and eventually it's gonna end up starting to impact us as well. Hmm. So um, it's important to at least appreciate how valuable they are uh, for all of the many things that they do for us, even if we're not always aware of it.
0: Dr. I. I know you're very busy. We sure appreciate your generous time. I just have a couple final questions for you before we kind of wrap this up and and you, and you kind of refer to a couple things. You know, um, the pollinators and and my wife has a vegetable garden here in Northern Virginia as well as a pollinator garden, and we have we have carpenter bees, and um, they're great for the the pollinator garden and, and they're everywhere. but they also do seem to wreak a little havoc on our wood fence and our deck. Is there a way to train them to get them to pay more attention to the pollination and less attention to our wood fence and deck?
1: Um, unfortunately no okay. <laughs> um, and, and the reason and the reason is because you know when they're going when they're when they're visiting flowers, you know they're trying to get resources. But they're not they're not digging into the wood um, mm-hmm. because they eat wood. They're digging in the wood to make more carpenter bees, mm-hmm. and so it's really hard to sort of discourage them. Now that there is there are some some things that you can apply to the wood to make it less interesting to them, and these are over the counter kind of things. Mm-hmm. And and most commercial like deck builders now use uh, wood that is treated in such a way that it. It, it will at least discourage them for a number of years. Now, eventually, um, you know, the, the 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 treatment wears off just from sun and exposure, but um, it does it does help reduce their numbers. But unfortunately, um, the best thing we can sort of recommend is doing live trapping and relocation is mm-hmm. about all you can do. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of of things that you can that you can get um, that's basically made out of kind of made out of a jar, but there are instructions for doing this, you know, sort of do it yourself at home, uh, carpenter bee traps. Mm. Um, and the only thing you do, you don't put anything in there to kill them. You don't, you don't drown them or anything. You just catch Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. and then you take them somewhere else and you release them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're only taking advantage of the soft wood with no bark on it. So it's kind of like if we build our houses out of something else, they'd be less interested in it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing you mentioned are beetles, and that was kind of one of the fundamental areas of, of your initial interest in in uh, entomology. We have my wife, particularly, although I'm I'm rooting her on. We have had a, a Dickens of a time growing cucumbers the past couple of years because of the um, cucumber beetles. What's the balance in terms of preventing them from causing? you know, the bacterial wilt that you see in the leaves of the, of the cucumber plants and doing that organically as opposed to doing that with some, you know, chemical.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one because, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when you're trying to trying to do it as, as sort of natural as possible. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. It's tough when you have these things that are really negatively impacting, you know, your, your garden. I absolutely agree with you that um, finding natural alternatives or lower impact alternatives to spraying with pesticides is absolutely the way to go because mm-hmm. the most of the pesticides that you that you uh, can buy right now are are not really great for everything else. Mm-hmm. So you know there's there's um, pollinators that are impacted by that. Both bees and butterflies are are negatively impacted by it. Um, you've got a lot of um, non-target things that will also be impacted. So, you know, a lot of people uh, don't think about it, but, you know, um, like everybody talks about how the fireflies seem like they're like they're fewer and fewer number. And if 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 light pollution wasn't already hard enough on them, people, you know, spraying and creating these green deserts, um, you know, because they look nice Mm -hmm. in their yard is negatively impacting these guys that everyone loves fireflies. Right. Mm -hmm, They're very mm -hmm. charismatic. They're not flies. They're actually beetles. Um, but, um, you know, so, you know, doing something very targeted, um, and something that doesn't leach into the, into the soil, leach into the water supply and doesn't have impacts on other things, uh, inadvertently is absolutely, uh, what we want people to do. And, you know, there's lots of alternatives. Um, you can, you can reach out to your, to your local, uh, you know, pesticide applicator, you can you can look a lot of this stuff up. You can contact your county extension agent. They'll be mm-hmm. more than happy to give you recommendations that will better target. You're never going to get one, you know, because of the way our pesticides uh, and and other things that we use to control pests target, uh, you know, nervous systems, um, and you know, it's hard to really target it in one thing and not another thing. So. Um, treatment of any kind is always going to impact more than the one species or two species you're trying to control. Um but try and keep it localized. Mm-hmm. Try try and keep it uh, as focused as possible on your cucumbers. And don't forget, you know some of this stuff isn't great for you or your or, or your family. so you 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 know when you pick this stuff, if you've treated it with anything, you know you want to make sure that you get it cleaned off really well before you before you consume it. Um, but no, we absolutely recommend people not overuse pesticides. It, it encourages pesticide resistance uh, to develop in some of these groups, and uh, it also ends up hurting other things, and not just insects. There are other things um, that can be impacted and it can biomagnify. and in some cases, you know uh, birds will eat insects that have been treated and it makes them sick, and then um, it it can it can sort of move on up the food chain. so, um, really, keeping your keeping your treatment program focused and as natural as possible uh, is 100% the way to go.
0: Dr. Floyd Shockley, always so great to talk to you. Important stuff, and and so timely too. Talking about the spotted lanternfly, the hammerhead. Uh, worms, uh, all of this great gardening uh, information that you share with us. We really appreciate your time. Our Smithsonian audience just, just loves to hear this stuff. Thank you so much for being so generous and for all your work, too. This is, just as I say, just great, great stuff. We appreciate it. And we'd love to have you back, but uh, have a great rest of your day and a great rest of your summer, Dr. Shockley.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: My thanks to Dr. Floyd Shockley from Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. My thanks, as always, to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Remember, be safe, and let's talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody, we'll see you next week.